Is World War III upon us? In this B-side episode, Chester B. Cabalza, president and founder of the International Development and Security Cooperation, tells Business World reporter Luz Wendy T. Noble why we Filipinos should care about the Russia-Ukraine war. He compares and contrasts what's happening in Europe to what's happening here in the Asia-Pacific, with China flexing its muscles. Closer to home, he also draws parallels between the hybrid warfare we're seeing and the conflict in Marawi. Good day to our B-side listeners. Today, I'm here with a very interesting guest who will tell us more about the implication of the Russia-Ukraine war to Filipinos. I'm Newswendy Noble, Business World Banking Reporter, but today I will be wearing a different hat because we are going to talk about security issues and what it means for the Philippines, even though it's from a global scale, even though this is currently happening in Europe. Sir Chester, our dear guest, can you introduce yourself? To us. Good morning, Wendy, and to all the listeners of the business world. I'm very happy and elated to be invited by Wendy. First of all, I'm Dr. Chester Cabalsa. I teach at the University of the Philippines in Diliman. I'm a security anthropologist. I'm also the founder and president of the Manila-based think tank International Development and Security Cooperation. And basically, my research interest is into development and security uh, looking from the lens of an anthropologist. So I think this is uh, very new in uh, most of the disciplines, not only in the Philippines, but uh, basically in in the worldwide global uh, academia, basically. But of course, the fusion of development and security, including uh, political anthropology, is not new because basically when we talk about wars, anthropology was born because of wars and through imperialism and colonialism, basically. So this is not new for, for many uh, people, but anthropologists were there even before these uh, Russia-Ukraine war uh, happened, basically. We've seen a lot of famous anthropologists who have written a lot of their um, ethnographies on that war, basically. So I think I'm happy to share my insights uh, as an anthropologist uh, on this discourse on the Russia-Ukraine war and conflict. Why should we Filipinos care about a war that is a thousand miles away from us? That's a very uh, interesting question because uh, we're far away from Russia and Ukraine and here we are suffering from the mess basically because of the uh, oil and uh, price hike that we have experienced. And if you ask uh, common uh, Filipino families, what are the implications of this war to them? Basically, we've seen uh, Filipinos now who have to think of gasoline expenses more than their food because it affects also the system of uh, everything there. If it continues to have uh, an oil price hike, naturally we will uh, feel and see more poverty in the country because of course uh, instead of families using their money and bills for, for food and other expenses, they have to consider also the, the prices on the, uh, on the oil. And secondly, of course, uh, if this war continues, we will see unemployment and uh, social injustices. So you see the uh, domino effect and the uh, ripping effect of this uh, war, basically. But uh, I'm looking at the three aspects, why and how it affects the Philippine economy, basically. One would be on the energy sector and the arms still and the lessons learned on the uh, warfare uh, that is happening right now in the Eurasia, basically. And of course, uh, it's a diplomatic impact also. First, let's uh, look at the energy sector. Of course, Russia being a uh, third largest uh, producer in the world, of course, is uh, using this as an agenda setting, basically. 
And we know for a fact that we have trade relations also with European Union. Basically, the EU relies so much from Russia in terms of their gas and oil supply. So that, that's 80%. So you, we're talking about a huge chunk of their dependency for Russia here. And if the European Union is affected, and that also means uh, we see some domino effect also, the, uh, the U.S. will uh, get affected also, and uh, most of the trading partners of the European and uh, the U.S. And uh, we know for a fact that uh, the Philippines is a like-minded uh, country that has good relations with these countries, basically, like European Union and, of course, the U.S. And it will definitely affect our relations uh, with them. And secondly, uh, you know, uh, we're talking about the dual approach of Russia here, uh, while, of course, Russia is using the uh, sharp power to impact regional politics in Europe because, of course, it tries to uh, leverage uh, on its uh, energy power. At the same time, Russia is also using it uh, for their intentions to uh, consequential effect also that even if the U.S. and the European Union are trying to impose uh, economic sanctions on them, it's still Russia is surviving. But of course, that's uh, temporary for now because uh, we're looking also the long-term effect because the war has not ended yet. And you know, the element of fear and fear is uh, inevitable. If you have fear, sometimes you have the uh, uncertainty and that becomes a problem also on how to survive from these uh, problems given that we just overcome our problems and issues uh, from COVID-19 pandemic. So a lot of issues are there. And uh, of course, we see some of the impacts of this. Secondly, on the arms deal and the wireless, warfare lessons here, we know for a fact that based from our observation, there's rigid uh, Soviet-style military planning and a false perception on the and the information on the Russian army. Based from perception, Russia uh, should be the second strongest military in the world. But it seems like they have not won the war yet because on the ground and tactically speaking, uh, supposedly Russia should be invading uh, Kiev for like days only. It seems like it has uh, taken them uh, longer. It, we're talking about more than almost two months already. So that becomes a problem in terms of the poor logistics, communication, and outdated uh, technology of the Russian uh, military and also the lack of morale and motivation of their soldiers because they haven't uh, known that their uh, soldiers will have to go to war. And even uh, most Russians were surprised by the decision of their president that they will go to war against uh, Ukraine. So also, we're looking at the corruption issues and in the Russian army, because basically, if it's the second uh, strongest army in the world, how come that they have not won yet? So in terms of uh, the tactical and strategic implications of this war, and of course, because when we talk about the security, it's multidimensional. We're not only talking about the military and political implications, but also the economic implications of this. So these are something that we can learn from them particularly on their approach towards uh, their war on Ukraine because uh, they are uh, using hybrid warfare which and also urban warfare which we saw in Marawi in the past in the Philippines. So these are something that uh, our military officers can learn from also in terms of the strategy and policy making in the Philippines. And also, even if Russia is doing some modernization program in which the Philippines is also doing the same thing, I think their strategy towards Ukraine is not effective. So you see the repercussion, the effect of all these things. Even if Russia is far away from us, we can learn a lot of things from them based from their current equations right now in terms of their warfare and the economic implications of Russia over uh, Ukraine. Now, we're also looking at the diplomatic dimension here because uh, we have set a strategic partnership in, uh, with, with Russia during this uh, administration uh, because of the fascinating 
nation and idolatry over uh, the Russian leadership. It seems like uh, there's a question now because of the chaotic standing of Putin over its underestimation of uh, on Ukrainian resistance. So we saw that uh, even if you have a vision of reviving your country to become a great power, you know, sometimes strategy is a matter of understanding also. You have to question how come that uh, Putin, irregardless of perception that uh, it's one of the strongest countries in the world, it's a major power, so far has underestimated its uh, strategy basically over uh, Ukraine. So these are some of the uh, economic, diplomatic, and uh, military implications of the Russia-Ukraine war in the Philippines that I see so far. I recall you mentioned about hybrid and urban warfare and how it relates to what has happened before in Marawi. Can you maybe simplify this? What's the difference? Basically, when we talk about hybrid warfare, uh, the, there's this Erasmus doctrine uh, looking at the kinetic and non-kinetic military operations. Because we know for a fact that there are precedents where Russian interventions to global affairs mattered. Say, for example, in 2016, they intervened with the U.S. elections. And we know for a fact that this is a form of cyber warfare. When we talk about the hybrid, it's a combination of many fronts of warfare. We've seen that also in the West Philippine Sea with the Chinese creation strategy. So these are like hybrid, basically, which are unrestricted. It goes with different terms, but in terms of the methodology and approaches, you do different things. A lot of -of out-of-the-box strategies and it becomes hybrid, uh, it's not conventional and it is unrestricted. And uh, because of that, Russia has been doing that. Remember what happened also before the invasion of Ukraine. Russia has been around uh, Ukraine already with the uh, state-sponsored uh, Russophile separatist movements in Donbas region and also the annexation of the Crimea in 2014 and also in the uh, southern borders of uh, for Ukraine. Meaning to see they have utilized different uh, instruments of power using a hybrid uh, warfare. I think in the Philippines, this is not new to us because we have experienced it firsthand uh, through civil wars by terrorists and also in the external defense of the Philippines in the West Philippines is uh, China Sea uh, to using the Asian strategy of uh, China through their uh, maritime mission. So in other words, uh, the Philippines is not ignorant about this uh, hybrid warfare. But nonetheless, maybe uh, the problem there is we have not caught and decoded the hybrid warfare and the degradation strategy of our nemesis. That's the reason why sometimes it becomes unheard for us. But what we saw in the Russia-Ukraine war are uh, examples of hybrid warfare can be a combination of the cyber, electronic warfare, and then some other tactical and uh, operational and strategic operations. There. So it's a combination of everything. That makes it a hybrid because it's undefined <laughs> as of the moment <laughs> how you use it. So that's the point. And also uh, using your warfare, your diplomats also can be a form of hybrid warfare. So when we talk about the security here, particularly national security, that's why you have uh, instruments of national power looking at the different dimensions of national security. It's a combination of everything, whether kinetic or non-kinetic, as long as it wins over your uh, interest, then uh, definitely that's a form of hybrid warfare. And uh, it's very uh, apparent in uh, what we've seen in the Russia-Ukraine war. And again, the Philippines is not ignorant about it. We have experience, but maybe we have not explored yet on how to counter these hybrid warfare. In what ways can this war set a precedent on aggression and disputes territorial disputes for the Asia-Pacific region. What we've seen so far is that the world is uh, shifting to a multipolar 
on our and multiplex world, meaning to say that uh, right now the U.S. is being challenged because it used to be the sole superpower after the Cold War. And uh, Russia was third. The USSR was third during the Cold War. And that's the reason why Putin, who at his uh, 80s was a, a KGB spy and uh, saw the uh, downfall of the USSR. And of course, he was trying to revive the mother of Russia concept and also placing Russia at the forefront as one of the great powers of the world. Because right now, the U.S. is being challenged and we have seen some contenders also who becoming superpowers like China, India, and Russia. And because of that, we will see a lot of hot wars. If there was a cold war, we will also see some hot wars, meaning to say that major powers will have to compete who amongst them will become the superpower. That's why it's in inevitable for them to go to war, to flex their muscles, military muscles, and definitely enjoined by their economic power and the international community support. And because of this, we will see a lot of tendencies for great powers or major powers to become more perfect because the world is anarchic. That's from a realist perspective. Observers are also saying that perhaps this can redound to what happened to Russia and Ukraine now. Imagine since uh, World War One until World War II and then you have the Cold War, Europe was a continent of wars and then later on, it became a continent of cooperation. We are very uh, good on multilateral cooperation and so on. But until Russia invaded Ukraine uh, unprovoked because of its own ideas on to reviving its economy and its uh, past old glory. But because of that, there's also a shift that uh, in the 17th century, there's this uh, concert of powers, or they call it a concert of Europe, because at the time, uh, great powers in Europe were competing also to become superpower. And we've seen uh, the United Kingdom becoming superpower, and it was passed over to the United States. And now, Asia-Pacific, which Americans have renamed to Indo-Pacific, have seen the same pattern. It's now perhaps the concert of Europe, where we will see hegemonic rivalry, power competition among powers in the Asia-Pacific region. So this is inevitable. And we've seen that already prior to the Russia-Ukraine war, we've seen the uh, trade wars between the U.S. and China, and possibly some of the shooting wars between these two powers. That's the reason why they are constructing a lot of whole of alliance approaches. Like we have seen the rise of the Quad, the AUKUS, as part of their quiet encirclement against a China situation. So these are the products of all these insecurities that we are seeing right now in the Indo-Pacific region or the Asia-Pacific region uh, for that matter. And some of interpreters, analysts, and observers are saying that uh, this has a parallelism to uh, China-Taiwan relations. But of course, my take on this is that China is actually learning so much from Russia and from USSR in the past. The reasons why China has not copied so much the uh, Russian form of communism because Russia failed, USSR failed. And vis-a-vis, they, they don't want to copy the same mistake that Russia is doing right now in Ukraine. Although quietly they are supporting Russia for that matter, but in terms of the uh, tactical and strategic implications, military operations, they will not copy what Russia is doing as of the moment. For the reason that, of course, China wants to build the trust because they have quiet uh, ambition to become a superpower. And secondly, they're copying what the Americans were do doing back in 20th century. While Europe was in war, uh, the United States was building its own economic empire. Same as true as, as, as what uh, China is doing right now. They've been supporting uh, the Taliban for world reorder 
Russia and Russia with their uh, war, although they do that Putin will go to war uh, with two conditions from China after the Winter Olympics and with the condition that, that they will not use their nuclear war. Those were the conditions of uh, Xi Jinping to Vladimir Putin. And as of now, we have not seen uh, nuclear wars yet because of this uh, precondition coming from, from China. Because of, if Russia will use that, China will go against uh, Russia also. Because we see some symbiotic relations between uh, Moscow and Beijing as of the moment. Because of these Axis relations, uh, they are trying to form a power that would change the world we order and the challenge to the United States. So, I mean to say, if we translate that to Asia Pacific, we will see more of conflicts, shooting wars, and uh, basically the approach of China towards Taiwan will not be the same as what Russia is doing right now in Ukraine. So China seems to have learned from Russia and will have a different strategy on how it deals with Taiwan. It's also interesting, I would like to point out how you mentioned there are growing powers in the region. You've mentioned China and India. And it's interesting because India and China are not really always on the same side, but this time seems like both are nearer to Russia. Yeah, because of some considerations also. India, for that matter, has practiced for a long time non-alignment policy. I think that is uh, one of the questions also for the Philippines on how to learn from uh, India because of our aspiration to implement independent foreign policy. And uh, to have an effective independent foreign policy, you should have a strong framework on non-alignment movement. And I think India and Indonesia had uh, experiences on that. But just uh, do agree that uh, of course, even if we see some differences coming from uh, Russia and uh, India, they've been supporting and uh, helping each other on the military experimentations. Remember the Brahmos missiles that we acquired from India and uh, Russia. There is a fusion of innovative uh, technological advancements coming from these uh, two major powers. And I'd like also to point out that these are difference. The product of the fall of USSR and, of course, the Cold War, that's the reason why Finland was not allowed to join NATO. That was the punishment uh, for them. And we've seen that uh, now they are allowing uh, Ukraine to be part of the uh, European Union because that was decried during the 2014 Orange Revolution, except that the condition of Putin was that Ukraine should not be allowed to join NATO because NATO was created to go against the USSR. Although Russia was invited for NATO, I think Russia was not prepared for that matter uh, because they thought that going east or the west, uh, Western European going uh, eastward would be a deterrence from them. So Ukraine became a buffer zone for Russia's uh, national security. But nonetheless, I want to pitch uh, the book that we've written uh, lately, The Rise of Philippinization, in which uh, we try to refer because of what uh, the Finlandization uh, concept, where of course you have a big power, meaning say uh, that's Russia, and then of course a smaller power, which is Finland. And because of what armistice that they had in the past, what was the resort of Finland? It has to become aggressive. For 100 years, they were able to make their country very uh, rich and they embrace democratic ideals. But in Philippinization, while held to, to the world is that while the Philippines is being dwarfed by two competing powers, you have uh, the United States and Russia, and we got the support of the United States. And also we are being lured through economic and diplomatic approachments by China. At the same 
same time, the Philippines is also building its own national security infrastructure through the military modernization program. And while doing this, there was no war. And I think this is something that other countries should also learn from it. The Finlandization concept has uh, turned to Filipinization. Right now, Finland and Sweden wanted to join NATO now. And uh, if provoked, Ukraine has the possibility also of joining NATO. So these are kinds of differences, contrasts and comparisons on the world affairs. What defense strategy could we be learning from this war so far that we could apply in order to better um, handle our defense issues, both internally and external issues we've been dealing with other countries? I've been invited to expert dialogue sponsored by the Naval Office and also by the National Defense College, where I've been very vocal about uh, the role of multilateralism. I've written also a paper on the uh, civil and maritime uh, security of the Philippines where I hold on the multilateralism because if we just focus on bilateralism, given that we still have an unfinished business with our giant neighbor on the West Philippine Sea, then that's going to be a big problem. Now is the time for us to build a stronger all of alliance approach because with the diversification uh, process we've seen in our foreign policy and in the defense policy, there's a possibility that the Philippines should not be faithful to one power only. I mean to say that uh, we can acquire military hardware from different powers, but at the same time become warm in our relations with them. Meaning to say that we don't just side on one power. As long as it redounds to the interests of the Philippines and to the Filipino people, then uh, let's continue with the diversification process. And I think that the lessons learned that we've seen so far in this uh, Russia-Ukraine war is the strengthening of the regional organizations like the European Union and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Remember when we had this uh, case on the West Philippine Sea, we tried to lobby our problem with ASEAN, but it seems like ASEAN is divided. And because of divisiveness, we tried to internationalize our dispute with uh, China, and we won an arbitration award in the permanent court of arbitration. So meaning to say that a regional government or organization cannot resolve regional disputes, same as true as what is happening right now in Russia-Ukraine war. It's been two months already, and the European Union, including NATO, are helpless as of the moment on how to resolve the issue. So there's even a question that what's the role of the United Nations now? So those are some of the uh, the big issues and problems that we have to look forward on how to strengthen these global and regional uh, organizations that we are building because we wanted to maintain uh, regional cooperation, global cooperation, and uh, global peace, basically. And I think what happened also in the Russia-Ukraine war is that despite the military uh, modernization that we've been doing in Russia and in the crafting of their national security um, strategy where uh, Russia tries to present itself as great power trying to get away from its narrative of victimhood. And that's the reason why they are refighting the old task story. And look at what happened with them as of the moment in the phase one of their war with uh, Russia. We still have to see what will happen because I think it will take longer uh, to resolve this uh, misunderstanding and differences. We also have to understand that while we are in the modernization uh, program also uh, for the Philippines, actually it's not modernization because we are just reviving the armed forces of the Philippines. That is the critic, basically, and we are now ending the second horizon, climbing to the third horizon, I think, which is also related to your question on what should the military be doing. I think they have to give the internal security to the Philippine National Police. When it comes to insurgency and terrorism, they have to leave that to the Philippine National Police, and they have to focus on the territorial defense operations, uh, which is the external.
internal defense, particularly on the maritime domains of the Philippines. That is the goal of the AFP based from our constitution. And uh, the third horizon of the AFP modernization uh, program should focus on the re-equipping of the Navy and Air Force and should also focus on the exit strategy from internal security operations to relevance of the territorial defense operations for them to succeed in this carbon global security landscape right now. What is your fearless forecast on how this ends? Is World War III really possible at this point? When we talk about security, it's very uh, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. It depends on the mind of the leader also. If Putin thinks that uh, he can only resolve and win through pushing the button on nuclear war, it may end the world. Remember that there are only two countries uh, that can end the survival of the world, of Mother Earth. That would be Russia and the U.S. If they go to war using their nuclear powers, then it's the end of the world. And that is something that we don't want to happen. But of course, what are the uh, possibilities? How it will end? We've seen also the aggression of Finland and Sweden. And hopefully by summer, at they would try to uh, join NATO, which they were forbidden to do so before because of the Moscow armistice. And that was uh, some of the precondition also. And I think Russia now allowed Ukraine to join the European Union. And that is a good move uh, based on their peace negotiations, but not NATO, unless provoked because Finland and uh, Sweden are thinking about that. Of course, we've seen also protests coming from other countries like in Moldova and some Eastern European bloc because they used to be part of the USSR. And because they have of this uh, bad experience on the mother Russia concept of USSR in the past because they were part. But remember, I have colleagues from Ukraine, uh, Moldova, Czech Republic, and Belarus. They felt that the Russian interventions in their lives for the past 20 years, and they have experiences on the atrocities of, of Russian uh, military here. But uh, what I'm trying to drive at here is that how will it end? And these are some of the scenarios that I'm looking. One is the neutrality of Ukraine. It seems like the peace process and peace negotiation is turning blurry as of the moment. So we don't know what may happen yet. I think we're looking at the territory of peace in Donbass, Crimea, and southern territory. Although these are state-sponsored terrorists by the Russo field, <laughs> as they as they call it, uh, because uh, Russia will not give back those territories to Ukraine. If Ukraine will uh, definitely agree with Russia, that of course this will become a part of a uh, territory of peace, then uh, perhaps. Uh, that would we will see a win-win uh, situation here. And a lot are saying that, of course, we've seen uh, economic sanctions coming from the West. Uh, some observers were saying that it's not enough. But for a short term, it's not enough. But for a long term, it will cripple the economy of Russia. And a lot of Russians will go hungry. And once people go hungry, they will protest because they don't support the leadership of uh, Putin. And also, a lot of Russians are not supporting Putin for their war over Ukraine. So I mean to say it's going to be the fall of Putin and perhaps the downfall of uh, Russia if that may also happen. And we will see a lot of hot parts because if Russia fails, then this will be also a reflection many of our great powers that even if you have sophisticated military technology, if you are perceived as a great power, it's not only about that. You should get the support of the international community and you have to gain respect from the international community. And I think there's possibility of uh, the missile and nuclear war, but as of the moment, Putin is not yet using that card because of 
of its conditions with China. Putin will abide to Xi Jinping's condition because they need each other. Remember that uh, Russia has inked a 30-year contract for gas supply in uh, China. This is uh, Russia's pivot to Asia Pacific and uh, Russia don't want to, to fail on that matter because economically, uh, Russia's economy is very is very small. We're talking about an economy smaller than uh, South Korea here. Although it's a military power by perception, but its economy cannot survive. And I think the last warning or uh, scenario that I'm looking for is the emergence of China as a winner. Because even if China is so quiet, they've been studying uh, Russia. Uh, a good example would be uh, the Russian form of uh, communism. They did not follow that. They infused capitalism in their socialism. That's why they became very successful. We've seen them now as the number two economy, world economy. And by 2030 and beyond, it's going to be the largest economy in the world. China is a keen student here. And militarily of Russia and uh, China, China uh, so far have not waged war since the Second World War. For Russia, they've been exposed to Cold War, to Afghanistan war. But for China, it has no track record on world wars. This is something that they have to really think about. Although it's now the number one Navy, number one Army, and number one Coast Guard and Air Force in the world, they have all those sophisticated military technology, but they lack the strategy on world war. So that is something that China has to learn. But beyond that, it will take longer, but it will evolve to different forms of war be it economic warfare, hybrid warfare, and we will learn more from this war on Russia-Ukraine. As we wrap up, sir, I just want you to maybe give a few words on what you want our audience to take away from this discussion on what this thousand of miles away war means for us and what we could learn so far from what we've discussed. I think the takeaway, major takeaway uh, for us, uh, for, especially for our listeners here, is given that we are now electing our next president and other leaders of this country in few weeks' time. We should always remember that we should vote for a leader who would think of the national interests of the Philippines. Even if Russia and Ukraine are far away from the Philippines, we can draw a lot of lessons from that. I've talked about the energy, the arms deal, and the lessons learned on warfare and the diplomatic implications of that. We discussed about its uh, implications to the Asia-Pacific region and what are the uh, defense strategy that we can learn from it. And how will it end? What we're trying to drive at here is that whenever we reach war or whenever we talk about war, nobody wins in war because everyone loses here. You see the effect of that to ordinary Filipino families and also the national and regional and global implications of this war. So whatever happens in Russia or in Ukraine, it has implications to, to us in the Philippines and to ASEAN. In different dimensions, there are effects and implications to each one of us. But beyond that, let's not underestimate the temperaments of our leaders. Our leaders are humans also. They have frailties, weaknesses, and sometimes they go crazy with their decisions also. And when they have wild decisions, all of us gets affected. So that, that becomes a big problem for all of us. Nations and leaders are all the same. They are volatile and frail. So we have to consider that. And uh, maybe the last word that uh, I would uh, want to tell to everyone, please choose wisely, vote wisely. Choose a leader for the Philippines who could think vision for multilateralism, have ideas on international relations, and also have a voice on world politics because the world is a global village now. Each one of us are very important in this ecosystem of the world. 
And that concludes another episode of B-Side. Once again, you heard Chester B. Cabalza, president and founder of the International Development and Security Cooperation, speaking with Luz Wendy T. Noble about the vast implications of the Russia-Ukraine war. Mr. Cabalza says that we can look at the conflict from different angles, energy, warfare, and diplomatic impact. The world is shifting. Geopolitical alliances are changing. But one thing is for sure, he says, there are no winners in war. This episode was recorded remotely on April 27, 2022. It was produced by Earl R. Lagundino and me, Sam L. Marcelo. Thanks for listening.